0: Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. This week's episode is so cool and so special because I got to interview this incredible guy who actually is like almost my neighbor here in St. Louis. His name is Matt Curran. We had such a good conversation. It was so insightful to listen to Mac's story. This was a really, really cool episode because me and Mac are both partnering up with the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services Time to Act campaign to stop the opioid misuse in Missouri and to bring awareness and prevention and just knowledge out there because like I've said so many times, knowledge is power. It was really awesome getting to hear Max's story and what he has experienced regarding opioid use and it was just a really cool conversation with a really cool guy and I hope that you enjoy and I'm so happy that we both got to partner up with such an important organization. So spread the word, Time to Com. Hey, Mac, how's it going over there?
1: Hey, what's going on, Jackie? I'm lovely. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. As I was saying before we started recording, you are in St. Louis, and that's so cool. We're neighbors. That's awesome. Did you grow up here?
1: I did. I did. My parents were in the same house that I grew up in as a kid. Um, I visit often, uh, and I've, I've been here for 36 years. Well, I lived in Chicago for a little bit, and then I went to Mizzou for a part of college so I was in Columbia for a while but for the most part I've other than traveling I've always lived in St. Louis
0: oh that's cool I just moved here last December so I'm a newbie but I love it
1: wow that's good to hear that's good to hear whenever fresh eyes come and love it yeah you know that means that we're doing something right the city's got a lot of work to do in a lot of different places but it's also doing a lot of cool work in a lot of different places so that's cool to hear
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, Mac, I am so excited to talk with you today. Uh, For those listening, we got connected through the Time to Act campaign. It is a campaign to bring awareness to opioid use and addiction. And Mac, do you want to talk a little bit more about the campaign and what it means to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, so I guess the important part of my story that pertains to uh, the time to act campaign, you know, probably get into more of it as we talk, I, I assume. But, um, is that I'm a recovering opioid addict, uh, opiate addict, and I used and abused everything from Vicodin and kind of entry level painkillers like that, all the way through to heroin. And I got sober off of them in 2013 and have been sober from them, uh, since
2: then. Mm.
1: And, uh, The time to act campaign is really important. Well, it's really important in the state of Missouri because our statistics are kind of blowing a lot of people's out of the water in terms of their growth, Um, and a lot of that is to do with fentanyl. Uh, Everything, you know, there's a lot of things that travel through Missouri as a hub that before it travels elsewhere throughout the country. Missouri, um, you know, whenever we were dealing with the meth epidemic, Missouri was a really high. uh, Missouri had counties that were really high um, distributors for meth it's always been a big drug state Uh, and it's become important to me in getting sober it became important to me early on to share my experience because in the process of getting sober I had a really positive experience Um, I really really enjoyed and really loved getting sober uh, and it did wonders for my life Um, and I I wanted to talk about it and I was already like hyperactive on social media. Uh, so I started to talk about it a lot and Mo DHS reached out, DHSS reached out to me and I started working with them basically just on advocacy, advocacy campaigns, trying to draw more attention to the statistics, um, show that this isn't just a drug that affects XYZ portions of people, but that it comes in all these different forms and ends up everywhere. Uh, And that it's not just an epidemic in one place or with one kind of person, but that it affects everybody and that it's being abused everywhere Um, And the dangers of abuse and and how easy it is to become addicted. And Moji HSS asked me if I was, uh, you know, interested in working with them and I was kind of already doing similar work on my own, um, just talking about it publicly. And uh, it's been kind of a symbiotic relationship ever since Um, I've worked with them three out of the last four years, I think, two out of the last three. Yeah. Three out of the the last four, I think, or two out of the last three. Um, But, and then they've worked with really great people too. Um, Obviously they just introduced me to you, Jackie, but you know, they've worked with mastermind who's a close friend of mine and a local musician and creator in St. Louis. They've worked with some really cool people and they brought in some cool professionals too. Um, And I think it's, you know, they're trying to have the whole conversation. So I'm happy to be a part of it.
0: Oh, that's really awesome. So, so cool. I I had just heard of them for the first time when they reached out to me. And so I was super excited to get involved in something like this because it felt really important that I got to be a part of a campaign that's bringing so much information and knowledge and voice to such an important topic. So I'm, I'm stoked about it. So Mac, would you want to start off the interview by describing the relationship with your body?
1: Right this moment or my relationship with my body as a whole?
0: Um, let's start with right this moment and then we'll kind of go into it as a whole and go back to like the beginning and talk Got about it. the whole dynamic.
1: Well, I, the reason the reason I ask is after peeping in on a couple of the episodes and, and doing some reading, you know, I really wish that I was coming into this episode uh, at a different in a different state of physicality, in a different in a different physical um, form, that I'm currently in because uh, I have a really close relationship with my body. And as of late, be you know, for purpose of transparency, as of late, I haven't been taking very great care of myself. Um, so, it, you know, on one hand, I want to answer wholly, and because I do have a really good understanding of taking care of my body as it pertains to physical health and you know managing external stressors and actually you know w- simple things like working out that that sort of stuff that i've kind of been neglecting as of late uh and that i but but there are things that are still important that even though i'm not applying them wholeheartedly right now there are things that are important uh you know that i think we talk about today um because they're in line with you know they're in line with the theme you know the theme of the show but also because when i got sober like i considered everything that happened to me physically to be a miracle because i was so out of touch with my body before i got sober and so out of touch with myself as a whole um so you know as that that being in touch for things that you know my
3: relationship with my body right now uh, i
1: fully understand now more than ever, even before I got a psychiatrist, before I got a psychologist, before I started taking medication, I fully understand now more than ever how much your body carries, uh, your mental weight physically in physical forms. And that's stuff that I'm really trying to work on, uh, in getting in touch with my body when, you know, when I'm uncomfortable right now, if I have, if I have discomfort, uh, What part of you know? What part of my body is uncomfortable? Focusing on that, changing my breathing, focus on that, that sort of stuff. So I have, I feel pretty good about my connection with my body. But again, after I listened to a little bit of what you talked to about talked to with people, I was like, okay, maybe I don't know anything (laughs) Um, because it was so because there's just been so much cool stuff said on the on the episodes that I and I and like I said, I didn't start listening until two days ago, so I, I didn't even you know, finish an episode in its entirety. I listened to a bunch, um, as best I could, but, uh, yeah, that would kind of sum up as best I could about my relationship with my body right now. Um, especially as it pertains to not feeling my best, but knowing the solutions to make my, that, that could make myself feel my best. I do know that they exist and I do know that I can apply them.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you very much for sharing that stuff. I'm excited to talk about your journey getting sober and how that really affected your just knowledge and awareness of your body. That's a huge thing. And I've got to say about like, everyone on this podcast in the past, I've learned so much right along with you from all these people that I've gotten the honor of talking with it. I think my favorite thing is that everybody has such different stories, but also very similar at the heart of it. It's that like, desire to want to connect with yourself and how the relationship with your body is just I've just learned it's such a core part of our existence because it's it's just our relationship with ourself and so I, I just think that that's awesome
1: totally I I mean I agree wholeheartedly
0: yeah cool cool well well Matt tell me more about how you talked about or actually look let, let's start from let's start from early on mm-hmm. Uh, what were you like as a kid when it came to your relationship with your body? Like when do you remember first kind of thoughts on it and what that even meant to you?
3: Oh, that's a good question. You know, I was always a little bit taller than the average kid and
1: I was always thin and I point those two kind of superficial things out first, because what other people notice about you at an early age can often be what you notice about yourself too at an early age. So I was lucky in that, you know, I didn't have uh body image issues or anything like th- anything like that growing up. Uh, I was, you know, I was always trim and fit and had an easy time playing sports and that sort of stuff. Uh, most of the stuff that I struggled with
3: growing up was mental health. So I didn't,
1: uh, I guess I took the the great relationship that I had with my physical health for granted. Um, for a long you know for a long time i didn't have an awareness of the connection between my mind and my body and that sort of thing because you know my mind was kind of all over the place and my body was much more reliable to me for a long time you know Mm. i knew i was going to play basketball the same every time i played basketball or that i was i could be good at basketball or good at sports or good at riding a bike or good at drawing good at writing um that actually now that i think about it That's the most important relationship that I probably had as a kid to my body growing up was artistically, um, you know, the connection between my brain and my hands for drawing. I used to draw and paint a lot as a kid. I really loved drawing. Uh, and you know, I remember really early on, you know, as early as third, fourth, fifth grade, the frustration of not being able to not, pressed down on a piece of paper with my pencil, uh, not to not be able to do it lightly. Everything I drew, I had to draw really big and hard and deep, bold lines and my hand would cramp up. And, you know, I've always had really bad oral fixations. I always am playing with my, even at, at this age, I'm always playing with my face, sucking my thumb, picking at my nose, picking at my ears. Um, I remember early on as a kid, finding a lot of comfort in that stuff and not knowing, you know, not really knowing why, um, the, the suck of my thumb thing, being a, being a big one, a relationship with my body that I've never really like fully understood that it's a comfort mechanism and a way to get serotonin and dopamine and that sort of stuff. But those, those are things early on. Definitely. The, the, the connection between my body when I wanted to create art and not being able to do what I wanted to get, what I wanted done. Um, and, and having those, you know, being too intense in certain spaces or whatever it was, being too something in certain spaces that didn't allow me to to do or create what I wanted, how I wanted to create it, because of things that were you know because of disconnections with my body or not mastering my body enough at at, at that age, um, and then definitely you know always being a poking poking pulling tugging. Scratching, itching—you know—always touching on everything around me, and always touching on everything on me, mm. all the time.
0: Okay, yeah, that that sounds very familiar to different things that I did growing up. I think something that I heard a lot about growing up was—I think it was called like trichotillomania or something. Does that sound familiar to you? It's like some kind
1: trichotillomania. Of, yeah no but I wanted to because then I can learn about it and find out if it's, if it's me and then, I can, and then I can do something <laughs> yeah. about it.
0: oh man it's uh, it's a lot of like like hair pulling and it's like an anxiety thing I'll send it to you I'll send a it obviously is spelled bizarre so I'll look it up and send it to you when we're done so you can look into it because it felt vindicating to me to realize like oh there's a reason for that I'm not just weird like there's a reason yeah. that that stuff is comforting to me Yeah. It's just like one of those creative things your body does to be like, Hey, this is going to be a way to soothe your mind because honestly, it's a crazy world out there. We need to soothe our mind somehow. And so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's interesting to me. What you're saying about how your mind felt more or no, your body felt more reliable than your mind growing up. That's fascinating. What was like, why do you think your mind didn't feel very reliable?
3: Oh, well, I, you know, I
1: got diagnosed with ADHD as a, or ADD. There was no ADHD yet. They, they hadn't like di- differentiated the two really yet um, when I was in second grade. And, you know, so that was like
3: 92, 93, 94, something like that. Um, And, I remember associating the people that
1: had to take medication before class started and at lunch with less than mm. um, because there were kids, you know, you didn't know any better at, at, in second grade, if you had to go, you had to go to the nurse's office at the same time as the kid with down syndrome. And the kid with down syndrome was getting made fun, you know, getting made fun yeah. of and, and called this and that, then you had these associate, you know, you know, and, um, so I say that from a second graders view, uh, yeah. um, you know,
3: and Absolutely.
1: so there was a lot, you know, so there was a lot, there was a lot to it. Once I learned about what it was, I struggled a lot because it felt like I've explained it like this a million times, but Imagine if you have a physical disability, and you can take a steroid that will even you give you a level playing field with everyone.
2: Mm. But
1: then they allow everyone else to have that. Then they overdiagnose people with your disability, and they start giving everyone steroids that's kind of how I felt about ADD and, and Adderall for a long time was like, I had finally found this thing that like helped me get to a level playing field. Well, it was simultaneously making me feel like I wasn't good enough to get there on my own, but, yeah. you know, get, getting to it would help me get to a level playing field. And then by the time I was in high school and college, I saw it over prescribed and abused so much that I felt like it didn't, you know, other kids could take it that were, non-ADHD non-ADD and be superheroes and that made me feel like oh shit you know why, why doesn't this work for me like that you know so there was just always this relationship with ADHD where I felt like completely uncomfortable in my own skin like I did you know like I didn't belong fully anywhere um you know and I learned more about that 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 wasn't just ADHD or clinical depression or anxiety, but, you know, had a lot to do with being an addict and an alcoholic too. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, th- that was a big one for me growing up that made me, you know, that made me feel definitely uncomfortable, you know, and as I fit in the world around me was that diagno, you know, that ADHD diagnosis early on.
0: Mm. Okay. I've never heard it talked about in that kind of way. That's makes so much sense to me about how that would feel as a little kid going in to get your meds with the other kids who, I mean, cause kids don't know any better and they make fun of other kids for that kind of thing. So obviously what are you going to feel about yourself? And that just makes so much sense. And when it comes to like Adderall and whatnot being abused and et cetera, et cetera, I that definitely I can remember a lot from high school about that being the big thing. And I always wondered how that affected kids who actually needed it. So that that's, that's interesting to hear you talk about. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like resentment around it. You know, a lot of people with ADHD Harbor, a lot, of, you know, carry a lot of resentment around that, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, and a lot of them, it allowed a lot of them to not have to not have to take their medication because they were selling it to their friends who were abusing it too, you know.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. It just turned into this big party thing for other people. And it just yep. crushed other people's mental health. That that's right. just, oh my god. Um, wow. Okay. So So tell me more, you mentioned something, I can't remember exactly what you said, but something tying uh, your ADHD into later um, addiction and alcohol. What were you, what was that connection there? Oh,
1: just about not feeling comfortable in my own skin, I realized had, you know, as much to do with ADHD as it did to do with me being, you know, being an addict and an alcoholic. And like that—that that discomfort, right? That—that—that mm-hmm. that, that not feeling comfortable in your own skin is also like referred to in, uh, you know, in addiction and recovery a lot. You know, is that you know the hole that you can't fill, um, you know, the empty pit that you just continue to throw whatever. And you know, if it's whether it's eating or uh, shopping or drinking or drugging or whatever, you know, it's the, you know, it's the feeling you can't fix. Kind of, you know, the bottom, the bottomless pit or the black hole, you know, in that, that discomfort for me early on, you know, in my my own skin, I figured out more than, more than any uh, medication helped me getting sober and finding other people, you know, finding other people that had in, you know, gaining at least a mild a mild grasp on spirituality, you know, and having even just some mild amount of connectedness to the world around me now, uh, was equally, you know, was equally as important as getting on the right medications.
0: Okay. What did, if you mind sharing your journey, kind of going through the drug addiction and the alcohol, what did, what did that kind of look like?
1: So I started drinking and drugging in probably middle school. Um, And I'm 36 now. I started drinking and smoking weed like a lot of high schoolers in America do. Um, Basically, like, you know, off of friends doing it around me, we smoked weed because it made you laugh. And we drank booze uh, because it made you wild and goofy. Um, I followed that trend into other drug use uh, and then I followed that into college where I was a, you know, I basically partied my way out of school and then kind of lived the life of a college student that really wasn't in school for a long time.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: I sold drugs and used drugs and drank heavily all through my college years and basically just partied. Um, but because I was in a college town, I was surrounded by all these other people that were doing it. Uh, so it didn't feel like I had a problem yeah um, I always wondered why everybody else was so su- was still so successful academically and with everything else around them while they were drinking the blackout every night with me but like it didn't work that way for me um, alcohol and drugs did not work out the same for me that they did for people who weren't addicts or alcohol i like, I I couldn't do all of it if I was gonna if I was Gonna use. I was gonna use everything, and I was gonna use until there was nothing left. Um, And I certainly wasn't gonna worry about going home an hour early because I had a test the next day or whatever. Whatever it was, I wasn't gonna prioritize it. Um, So I I partied heavily throughout college and into, you know, if you want, if you want to call it adulthood, I certainly I don't feel like an adult today. Let alone you know, ten years ago when I was still drinking, (laughs) but. (laughs) I, uh, my drinking led me to a lot of, uh, physical problems, like car accidents, punching things, getting in fights, getting thrown out of places, breaking up fights, working at bars and clubs and doing all this hard labor, um, in, 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 in this kind of seedy industry where violence was regular and I ended up getting hurt all the time uh you know, fell off a table putting a light up because I was drinking while I was doing it, you know, was in a drunk driving accident, was in multiple drunk driving accidents, shattered my hand, uh all these things. Well, when
3: that stuff happened, uh it introduced me
1: to opiate painkillers. And that's where I learned very quickly that between opiate painkillers and the abuse of benzodiazepines like Xanax for my anxiety that I, as much as I was an alcoholic, Becky, I was much, much more a drug addict than I was anything. And that's where I found, you know, that's where I found my love for opiates, which led me to kind of sped up my path to sobriety. Maybe I would have found sobriety via drinking, maybe not. Maybe I just would have gone on being a miserable alcoholic my whole life. But when I found these harder drugs um, via drinking and partying, they became what I cared about most and everything else was kind of an afterthought. But they also careened my life into, you know, kind of like a 50 car pileup much faster than alcohol would have uh, because alcohol is much less culturally taboo. So yeah. I probably could have gotten I probably could have gotten away with a lot more for a lot longer if I just kept drinking. But instead, I've started using harder drugs, opiates um, to be specific. And that led me to, you know, and that led me to get sober.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. So I have so many questions for you after that. Thank you, first off, for sharing for, for that sure. I hope I feeling. summarize
1: it well enough. I hope I, like, I hope I summarize it well enough. I, yeah. it's easy to get bogged down in details, but I want to, I'm going to try to stay on track. So.
0: Uh, I, no, I appreciate that. And it absolutely is easy to get. Cause it's such a, it's such an important, complicated story as everyone's is. So it's just like, where do you go and what to tell and whatnot. I totally get that. But tell, when, when you were younger, like middle school, you said that's when you started, you started drinking and like smoking weed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you have any kind of awareness of it being like a tool to get out of your body in a way to kind of like numb out escape, or was it just purely for fun at the beginning?
3: You know, I
1: wish that I could answer this like many alcoholics do and say that the second that I tried it, I, you know, like I felt complete. Well, Smoking weed, let me answer. Smoking weed is a little easier. Smoking weed, I never was in love with, you know, as a kid or throughout. Um, I think that as I've learned more about weed now, that's because I consider it to be much different. Even as it's classified as a drug, I consider it to be much different than alcohol or opiates or, you know, narcotics, um, amphetamines, that sort of stuff. So, that being said, weed was like, you know, I love that it made me laugh and my, it made my friends laugh and it made food taste better or, or So we thought whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> stuff we did a hundred years ago, you know, the, the three things that it did to the guys in half baked is what we thought it was going to do to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, but as far as drinking goes, when I started to, when I started to drink, I felt whole because what drinking did or what I thought drinking did, what it felt like it did as a kid was amplified all the good stuff about you. Mm-hmm. What we find out in adulthood is it, it tends to amplify all the crappy stuff about you. But, <laughs> you know, it made it easier to talk to girls. Um, it, you know, when you're in ninth grade, you're still doing dumb things like jumping off of high places and and playing pranks and stuff. It made stuff like that more fun. It made you more brave. It had, you know, you had your inhibitions were lowered. So you it seemed like you had more gall, you know, it, it made uh, kind of interacting with your buddies. It made you, it helped you be more assertive and more courageous, you know? So there was mm-hmm. definitely things about it. There, there were definitely things about it that I had not felt otherwise. And when I felt was uh, from drinking was immediately drawn to, you know, where it was like, okay, I immediately associated that warmth in the center of my chest and my diaphragm. Like I immediately associated that warmth, like, okay, I'm on my way to a better version of me.
0: Mm. Oh, that is relatable.
2: <laughs> you know?
0: Oh Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, that, that's a really good way of explaining it on my way to a better version of me. I think like, I don't know, everything you're saying makes so much sense as far as like lowering your inhibitions and making it easier to talk to girls or to talk to guys or to do fun things. It just makes everything seem better. That is exactly how I would have described it when I first started as well started drinking back in high school so I I completely get that um when it when it comes to your the painkillers were those were those prescribed to you at first from like a doctor from any kind of
2: yes uh, yeah okay yeah about
0: and I words?
1: wasn't i and I wasn't uh I didn't never have any you know I didn't ever this is a you know, joke coming from a from a drug addict, but you know, I never got lucky enough to get one of those doctors that overprescribed. Um, yeah, I was always I was always trying to finagle my way into figuring out how to get you know how to get more from these doctors because uh, once I started, you know, I talked about this on a podcast a couple of days ago, the SEO Bucket List podcast. Um, we talked about how. You know, everybody has a drug of choice, but if you're programmed as an addict or an alcoholic, you know, there's a likelihood there's a really high likelihood that if it's an addictive substance, you'll end up finding a way to love it. If it's all you have available to you mm-hmm. um, and that was the reason I say that is, you know, talking about getting these painkillers, when I first got these painkillers, these injuries, I was like, I don't care about this stuff. I was like an upper guy. I was like a go, go, go guy. I was like drink and do cocaine and do ecstasy, all these things that make you, even though alcohol is a depressant, but like all these things that make you party and connect with other people. And you know, connect with women or connect with the opposite sex and dance and jump around and all this stuff. And I was like, why would I want these painkillers? They don't do anything. They just, you know, they make you a, they make you a slug. Like, mm-hmm. who cares? You know, who cares? But I did know that people did like them, so that was like the okay. Well, I know I'm holding on to something important because people are getting messed up on these, and I could, you know, so there's there's obviously something to it. Yeah, and that for me as an addict and alcoholic was enough for me to go. Okay, well, I'll give it a shot and take them the way that I'm supposed to, and I like the way that they made me feel. Um, and it was just downhill from
2: there.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah, I've heard a, a handful of stories to where it starts off as like a, a prescription from a doctor in like a seemingly, seemingly harmless way, and then different. and different whatnot choices and decisions and things happen to people. And
1: Well, I think that's why it's important to talk about it from the time to act standpoint too, is because I think that uh, people don't realize how common a Vicodin script for a broken collarbone to, well, to you, Jackie, starts to become a... I'm going to take my meds a little earlier tonight because I want to relax, and they make me feel good. And then that overlines with your glass of wine that you have after dinner, and how six months later you are having a glass of wine and four biking in at three p.m. And how that that that's not a that's not an anecdote that we just pulled out of the sky. You know that mm-hmm. that's happening all over the place. To you know it's just as important to talk about it happening in the hood as it is to talk about it happening in the suburbs but to give people who think that it's not affecting them an understanding of it like that's a really common way that this you know that that people find out that they're addicts and they're addicted to this stuff you know oh, yeah is a normal is a normal uh, you know i sprain my knee on a ski trip or playing with my kid on the trampoline and the doctor gives you Vicodin and all of a sudden that beer after that beer with your dinner that you have every day turns into a beer and a cup of Vicodin turns into a, you know, I'm addicted to opiates.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a really, that's a really important point that you just brought up. I think especially I I'm less familiar with the opiates world than I am with the alcohol world, which is partially why I'm so happy to be learning from you and with this campaign but i know that when it comes to alcohol like you even mentioned earlier it's so socially acceptable and it's so normal that you don't really realize there's so many people who probably don't even realize that they have a problem or an addiction to it or i don't know because it's absolutely, normalized
1: yeah absolutely yeah high functioning alcohol high functioning alcoholism alcohol you know uh then some people are so built into their routines that their alcoholism isn't, I mean, it's still killing them and you know, who's to say if they're miserable or not, only they can tell that, but uh, yeah, where they're, you know, it's almost like a scheduled alcoholism or a scheduled addiction, you know, where they they do the same thing every day. They go to sleep the same way. And it's like, it's not really harming anybody. It's certainly making them miserable and and driving them to an early death, but it's not really harming anyone else. You know, there's just, there's so many faces to alcoholism and addiction now because it's everywhere, Yeah, you know? And and yeah, and especially with alcohol, it is so widely socially acceptable, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, bizarre to think
3: that like, if you think of the behavior that occurs within, uh, like not within
1: alcoholism, but within alcoholic consumption, the behaviors are so taboo. If you did them sober, like, you know, you hear these stories and we laugh about them whenever they happen, when we drink and we think they're horrible, whenever they happen, whenever someone's high on drugs, but you know, a guy that's high on heroin and nods off and urinates on himself is a travesty and, you know, is, is disgusting. And it's all, you know, it's all these horrible things. It's pathetic. And, and, and all of, you know, it, all, all of these horrible things, but a college kid drinks to blackout and pees his bed and he does it like every time he drinks for four years straight and we don't bat an eye at it. Cause it's just like, Oh, it's kids being kids. You know, and it's yeah. like it's just as dangerous if you're passed out to the point that you have no control over your bowel movements, and you know, it's just as dangerous. Um, you know, on the overarch the like the, the overarching usage is just as dangerous, you know. And uh but yeah, culturally it's all widely accepted, you know. We get we get in a fist fight when we're sober, we're a lunatic, we get in a fist fight when we're drunk, we were just drunk, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um
1: you know, and the list goes on.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I yeah, I just remember people talking about how in very, I mean, these are very, in very abusive ways, just how they want to get drunk so that they have an excuse to do what they're doing to people. Yeah. Yes. And it it's so, it's just sad because honestly, they're just being really honest because how many people really do feel that way? Because it makes sense. You have an excuse to just do, yeah, absolutely. be however, uh, to have that like fake sense of freedom, I guess. But yeah, what, what would you say? How would you say that opioid world compares to that as far as being socially acceptable? I know that it's not quite as sort of like there's not like bars and stuff. We just get that out and about. But how would you say that that compares?
1: Well, I think it all depends on what it's, it's less culturally taboo in certain, in in certain circles. I think that that's, I think that that's important. Um, I think, you know, I, I think in sports, it's very common for people to have these kind of, you know, quote unquote, mild addictions, you know, because they're using painkillers to manage the pain brought on by sports. And they think they're not addicts, but as long as they remain an athlete, They never find out if they're, you know, they never see that they're going to take this stuff every day and that they're addicted to it. You know, it just becomes a regular thing that you take a Vicodin before practice and then take a Percocet after or whatever. Uh, I think, you know, in the nightclub scene, obviously it's not nearly as taboo, uh, because it's really popular in music. Um, you know, raps are most popular is the most popular style of music in top in the top 40 right now and what most of the rappers talking about you know popping perky's and oxy's and zans and there's a there's a culture around it where yeah it is it's socially acceptable to do pharmaceuticals as long as you're not using heroin or fentanyl on purpose and intentionally then you're not a dope fiend you're just a pill popper and that's okay um and that's kind of how like a lot of the rappers portray it uh when in reality you know it's all the same um, so I think that there's definitely certain spaces where it's being destigmatized like in the wrong in the wrong ways you know where it's become more of a common thing to really just be like okay, popping a couple bike in and that'd be that you know
0: yeah oh yeah I completely can get that that's so hard I guess for the same reasons then as alcohol is it's just it's just around it's just yeah. what people do and it's normal and yep. that can be so scary because normal isn't like, doesn't it mean it's good. <laughs> there's a lot of things to say about that.
1: Well, yeah, and there's also well, it's uh, well, and for a lot of people that feel terribly, it, it oh, this is gonna make me feel different. I'll try it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll take the yeah. risk. Maybe it'll make me feel worse. Maybe it'll make me feel better. Maybe it'll make me won't make me feel anything. But I don't want to feel the way that I feel now.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all just ways to get through life. And it makes yeah. sense. It completely makes sense. It's just it sucks because it's so harmful. But it's not like some insane thing. Reason why people do that. It it makes sense. I think that that was like a really important thing that my, my therapist talks to me a lot about when I first started talking about Drinking with her, which was the most terrifying conversation of my life. It was right before I went to treatment for an eating disorder, actually, which is a whole other lane of addiction type conversation stuff. But a big thing that she was talking about that was helpful with me was just validating why and Talking about past traumas and being like, yeah, of course you want to get out of that. Of course you want to numb out and escape. Like, that makes sense. Let's just find a different way to do it. That's right. not harming your body. And so uh, that was really important for me to hear. I know that you're a big, you're a big, uh, t- you talk about therapy quite a bit, right?
1: Yeah, because I talk to my therapist quite a bit.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. same here, man. The therapist can't get... Can't not get a good therapist. How has that been helpful for you?
1: Um, Accountability. For sure. Uh, I I think that I used to give myself a lot of credit for being more self-aware than I was. Um, I give myself a lot more credit for being vulnerable and insightful than I actually was Uh, still to this day, you know, still to this day. Um, You know, as an addict and an alcoholic and somebody that was always in trouble their whole life, I lied all the time. And still to this day, struggle with being dishonest Uh, with my therapist. You know, you spend so much money on something. You're not going to do it the disservice of bringing false information so that it doesn't work. You know, there's no, there's no point. Uh, You don't need a therapist to tell you fake things. You could just, you can just fabricate them yourself if you're going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, even when I'm the shittiest version of myself, I tell my therapist that, um, you know, when it's a, it's a judgment free zone and a way to, you know, kind of work through the, you know, unresolved traumas or whatever it is that has, you know, led me to act in, you know, undesirable ways or unsavory ways or be dishonest or, you know, be a recluse or withdraw or not take not taking proper care of myself. Like my therapist finally had it up to here with me yesterday and said that um you know she's making it a requirement that I hit the gym twice before next Wednesday because she knows that I'm better for it, you know, and that where where I can go. And then right now I feel really alone while I work out. So I don't like it. And uh that's new for me. And I'm like running away from it. So she's like, well, you need to dive into being alone. Then obviously you need to go do, you know, you need to go do it. There's nobody else in my life that could tell me that, that I'm actually going to listen to, but you know, I have this accountability meter with her where, you know, she says it, you know, I'm going to do it because everything that she said to this point has worked. And the only time I fail is typically when I keep things from her, or don't listen or don't
2: mm-hmm. share.
0: That's really cool. That's really cool and so important to have someone in your life, first of all, that you have that level of trust with that you will listen to them, whether that's because they are doing it professionally or you have just or that and you've just known them for years and they know your story and you just they've really proved themselves to be a trustworthy person. That's so important to have that someone who you just can't lie to because I mean, at least from my experience, lying to myself and those around me was like, that was the way to have the addiction. That was the way to live the life like that is to just keep pretending. So that's really cool. Yeah. What, what were some, um, I know that you mentioned earlier spirituality, uh, that in therapy, like what are some things that really helped you as far as getting sober and being sober like what are some tools that you could recommend anyone listening to this who might be in a similar position as you looking into you were looking into
2: well
1: you know one of the most important things that i learned about in early recovery that helped me the most i mean this probably helped me the absolute most in early recovery like as a concept you know not a not a practice or. Uh, or a theory, but just as a concept and a way to think was this, the idea of, uh, have you ever heard of terminal uniqueness?
0: No, actually.
1: Okay. So terminal uniqueness is the belief that an individual is a belief of an individual ab- about themselves, that they are so unique that they can't be helped, you know, so that my situation is so dire because it's so Complicated and special that you know that I'm a lost cause. That AA won't work for me because I'm not that, or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this. So NA won't work for me.
3: Um I
1: was kind of the opposite. I was like, what's wrong with me? Somebody please tell me so I can get some help. I just didn't know that it was alcohol. I didn't know that it was alcoholism and addiction.
2: But
3: <clears throat> it's the,
1: you know, the danger around terminal uniqueness, there are solutions for all of these things. Right. So someone can get in, you know, can be like, okay, yeah. Drinking and drugging. Yeah. That's, you know, I drink too much and I, and I, you know, do too many drugs, but you know, my dad beats me and my boyfriend cheats on me and my, you know, what, whatever the list goes on. My boss does this, my boss is that, you know, and they all make this layered story that makes everybody's story unique. But like what AA taught me is like at the end of the day, like no matter what hand life has, has handed you or has dealt you, there are certain things that without fail work to make you feel like and be a better person that in turn, make you feel better about your situation, regardless of your situation changing.
2: Mm -hmm. you know,
1: because it makes it all about you and your connection with the universe and your connection with, you know, a, a higher power. It makes it all about you and your relationship with yourself, you and your relationship with your ego, understanding, you know, how dangerous your ego can be, those sort of things, you know, where it's like, no matter, you know, you do exercises in AA where you talk about resentments against people that have wronged you and what role you play in it. And you're like, what, how could I possibly have played a role in this person wronging me, you know, in, in come to find out that, yeah, you never did anything in reactivity to them, but you've been carrying around, uh, resentment towards them and letting it out in other spaces towards other people. You have to make recompense for that. You know, you have to make, you have to reconcile that somehow and, and, you know, and work on, work on not doing it that, you know, the next day and the next day after that, uh, it, it was really, really helpful for me when I looked at the statistics early on,
3: when I, Sat down, shut up,
1: and listened to what somebody else had to say who had more experience than me and who had been where I had been. Everything made sense. You know, mm-hmm. when I talked to somebody who had 20 years sober, I I looked at it as two things: a guy that once was where I was and that now has what I want. So, I got promised everything by these people in AA and by these people in recovery at these rehabs and stuff that if I just did the stuff, it would work. And I just believed it, and it did. Um, that's not to say that I didn't do the work or work really hard at it. Um, and have a lot of help throughout the process, but I felt really relieved whenever I found out, you know, that I was an addict and an alcoholic, because I knew that there were solutions out there that had worked for people, you know, and if they could work for them, then it could work for me.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are really incredible and important things just to get out there and to put out there. I'm really, I really like what you said about how no matter what hand life has dealt, like there is hope. And that's, that's hard and kind of like, I don't know that that's tricky territory sometimes based on like different layers. And I know you talk about this too, different layers of like privileges and stuff that people have. For
1: sure. Totally. And that's yeah. really important to bring up. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did too. You know, that's well. That's a big reason why I work with Time to Act too, because I want to be able to reach more people than just the rooms of AA, because they're or just the rooms of AA and A, and just these recovery rooms. Because there are <clears throat> there, I I don't want anything that I'm saying to. I don't want that to get misconstrued as bootstrapping. You know, saying like no matter no matter your situation if you work harder and do this and that you can pull yourself up out of it like i don't believe that i do believe that there's there's socioeconomic you know socioeconomic and racial dynamics and segregated dynamic, you know segregation that play a huge roles in all this stuff too you know and i think i'm yeah. glad that you brought that up too because you know especially as a white male of privilege i don't it is tricky because when you go into aa rooms there are a lot of older white men that are like, look at how successful I've been in this program. And it's like, well, have you had to deal with all of these other external factors that a lot of people that are addicts and alcoholics that aren't white men have to mm-hmm. deal with that then make it all so much hard, you know, that then make it all so much more complicated or so much more difficult. But even in that we can go back to terminal uniqueness and I can point out that, that they're, they're not alone.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. And that
1: the, and that the solutions when applied, you know, they don't put money in your bank account but they lead you to be the kind of person who can get the career that does put money in your bank account. You know, they don't put you know, they don't immediately put warmth in your heart, but they lead you, you know, they lead you down a path to figure out how to cultivate that yourself through your own friendships and relationships, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And such good such good stuff to, to talk about and to just spread so people out there listening don't feel alone. Because I think that's like a huge part of it is that feeling of like, well, no one else is going through this and I'm the only one who's ever had this issue and all that kind of stuff. It's really important that that's part of why I love having people on here to just share their stories so anyone can listen and connect to some kind of partner to be like oh this person went through this but they got out of it this person now feels this way and it's possible that's just that's all really cool Beck, i have two more questions for you if that's okay absolutely awesome Awesome. well my first question for you uh is and i think we might have touched on this a little bit but what are what are ways today that you really like to connect with your body and your mind and just what are things that you do that help you feel
2: whole?
3: Oh, well, definitely going to my parents' house and swimming.
2: Um,
1: I don't, I didn't do it a lot growing up. I still don't do it a lot when I do it. I'm not like a big swimmer. Um, But when I do do it, you know, that weightlessness and that being in the backyard around the family, you know, it, it's like, you know, it's like having your blankie almost, you know, it's like, takes you back to the safest, to safest and happiest and most innocent times in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a, you know, that's been a big one this summer. Um, I need to do more. I need to do more of, um, you know, I
3: think there was a point in time there was
1: a point in time uh, within the last few years where I was biking and where I was biking as a way to work out, and I was biking to and from my workouts, and I think that there's a really there's something really important about uh, that kind of reliance and dependence you have to put yourself in positions where you have to depend on your body to take care of itself. And whenever you're biking somewhere, uh, the same way as whenever you're standing on a balance beam or you're swimming or you're committed to a run, you know, you put yourself in these positions where you have, you have to finish. Um, and when you do, you feel, uh, you know, you feel amazing because you know, you can rely on yourself to get from, you know, to, to complete the task, uh, physically. And I think that's a really important thing for me right now that I and I need to be focusing on getting back into because I, I don't have the kind of confidence in myself that, that I've had in the recent past. Uh, but, you know, the biking, the working out, the making sure that when you're working out, that you're challenging yourself. Um, those are huge ones. I wish I could sit here and say yoga and Pilates and things like that, <laughs> but I can tell you, I can tell you that when I've done them, when my favorite when my friends have made me do them they've been revolutionary and that the only thing that stopped me from doing them has just been my own laziness stopped me from doing them regularly has been my own laziness um but you know plank is incredible and completely kicks my butt and uh yoga a true fusion is something that uh you know something that i used to do not a lot in the past but often in the past that like even just in doing it a little bit, you can tell like, okay, these guys are onto something. This is going to help. Like this would help if I did it committed, you know, if I did it with com- commitment.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love what you said about the pool being at at your parents' house and just feeling like you're going to in a warm blanket. I totally get that, that like anything that makes me feel like I'm like a little kid again, Yeah, it's almost like there was this point, I feel like when we were kids before before we felt disconnected. And it's kind of like this reminder of that. And that's still there. And that's still a part of who we are. I, I love how you brought up biking because I actually that's how I feel when I ride my bike. That's been like a new, a new big thing for me. So that's really cool. My last question for you has absolutely nothing to do with anything we've talked about. Is that okay? okay.
1: Absolutely. I love a curveball.
0: Okay, amazing. Mac. Would you rather live in a house that you built only out of Cheetos and Ruffles potato chips? Now, this house is completely designed. The Cheetos can be shaped like different things, like the couches, TV, bedrooms, like Ruffles chips can be like the picture frames on the wall. Everything is a little bit delicate because they are snack food and you could fall through the couch. But if you sit really carefully, you could also be like this really cool dude sitting on a couch made of Cheetos and when you eat it if you want to to want to eat your couch like if you got hungry it would come back so you have like okay. unlimited supplies of Cheetos and Ruffles potato chips or would you rather have a job designing the world's new life-changing candy canes now these candy canes are absolutely delicious and they could come in any shape and any size and any flavor you want them to and they're so good and they're good for you there's vitamins in there there's minerals there's whatever it is that like your mom tells you to take when you're sick like these things Mm -hmm. are good for your immune system and they taste amazing and your whole life is revolving around that but it is also a pyramid scheme but There is some truth to back up the candy canes, but it's a pyramid scheme. (laughs) Which one would you rather do?
1: Holy shit. You just really screwed me. I thought (laughs) I had it. I thought I had it answered. Uh,
0: That last bit, huh?
3: Yeah, I guess for the purpose of, I
1: guess to like feel like a person of integrity, I guess I got to go with the potato chip house. That just sounds miserable. (laughs) (laughs)
0: okay let's take away the pyramid (coughs) scheme and let's add in that with these candy canes every time you make a sale somebody in the world has a very embarrassing pass of gas and you won't ever know who that is and you won't ever know what the situation is but someone lets out it's harmless like it's just like a fart or a burp but it happens in a very embarrassing way, but you're also like being successful with this candy cane business. That is a nonprofit. We'll keep that in there too. Which one would you rather do?
3: You know, I still don't want any
1: responsibility over the actions of people other than myself. I don't want to be responsible for anybody else's body. Okay. I've learned I've, I've,
3: i've learned you know
1: yeah i would still i'm just not artistic enough to stack cheetos into like a spiral staircase but i guess (laughs) if i have all the cheetos in the land and i I guess i could figure it out
0: yeah you'd have some help
3: you'd have some help i still do
1: i still uh I'd still do the potato chip house, even though it really does sound good to mark, you know, I'm in marketing. So I would, I would, I would really love to market the world's most revolutionary candy cane, but not at the expense of other people's, not at the expense of other people's bowels.
0: (laughs) I didn't even connect those dots when I brought in the selling the candy cane thing. That's amazing. Mad respect for you not wanting to accidentally make someone else have a really embarrassing pass of gas. By making a sale that's quite the that's quite the predicament that that would put you in so thank you very much for your answer i can't say i would do the same i can't say i don't know i'll have to get back to you with my answer <laughs> uh, <laughs> mac thank you so much for the time that you have spent just chatting with me and letting me pick your brain and all about this all this good stuff what where, where can people find you and learn more about what you're doing, and then where can people find this campaign and find resources and whatnot if they are struggling or know somebody who has some kind of something to do with opioids?
1: Uh, well, first and foremost, much more important than any of my than anything about any of my information is MoDHSS has all of the MoDHSS has all of the information for time to act Missouri um, at time to act um, It's that easy. It's time, the number two act Missouri.com. Uh, and it's really interesting. It's really cool. There's a lot of stuff on there. There's um, a bunch of statistics, like moving statistics that tell you about, Non-fatal ER visits due to overdoses, um, you know, lives saved with naloxone. Uh, like it has running tickers for stuff like that, so that you can actually see like the help in tow. Um, there's all sorts of stuff about harm reduction for people around you, uh, places to potentially get training if you're interested in working, and then there's a ton of stuff about treatment and support, obviously. Um, and it's a really easy site to navigate And it's got a lot of cool statistics on it And it's fun And that's time to the number two Act Time to act Missouri.com uh, And then all of the All of the work that I'll be doing with them Will be done essentially through I kind of cheat And don't operate a website Or anything like that I just use my Instagram Which is DNA Underscore Mac M-A-C 300 300 300 um, That's DNA Underscore Mac 300 And uh all my work will be up there. We'll have a live panel. We're doing a live panel discussion. We are doing um, we'll be making some fun reels and some fun posts and stuff too. And obviously putting stuff on the story so people can get informed. Um, and you'll see a lot of that uh in the coming like month, month and a half from me.
0: Okay, that's awesome, Mac. Thank you so much for all the work that Uh, you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I will see you around. Maybe I'll pass you in schnooks or at The park or something. Absolutely, I hope so,
1: Jackie. There are so (laughs) many parks.
0: Oh yeah, you have a great Better than bars.
1: Better than bars.
0: Oh wait, wait. wait. Oh my gosh, I forgot. I'm so sorry. One more question, really quick. Yes. Do you know? I was going to ask you this after we stopped recording, but in case anyone's interested as well, as far as being uh, sober in St. Louis, do you have any recommendations of sober-friendly, even bars or nightlife type things that people can go do where there's either mocktails that are really awesome or the the waiters and waitresses are just like really cool about it or maybe oh
1: totally 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 there's um you know some of the places that i go are actually some of the in st louis some of the higher end maybe not higher end i should say some of the more boutique cocktail bars in town are actually really welcoming and open uh, in in great formats too for people who may want to be out with their friends while their friends drink, but don't want to drink and want, you know, want to do something. Rockwell Brewing, Lucky Accomplice, Platypus, um, basically the entirety of the Grove, um, everywhere in the Grove will make you a mocktail, a good mocktail for sure. But yeah, there's a ton of places. And, you know, if you're in St. Louis and you need resources like that, uh, I recommend checking out STL Bucket List on Instagram. Um, They do a lot of stuff, work with the community. And that's uh, if they don't already have that list, I can guarantee you that I could text STL Bucket List and ask them to make a top 10 places to get a mocktail in St. Louis and they'd have it out by next week um oh, that- so they're they're a great resource too uh and my ig is always open you know for if you need help finding aa meetings na meetings you know resources resources to get help that sort of stuff um i'm not a medical health professional uh and don't work in recovery but i know a lot of really great people that do so i can definitely uh help people find the right people <laughs>
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for that one last little thing. That I was for really sure. excited no, to ask sure. you that. So thank you very much, Mac. You have a wonderful rest of your day and I will talk with you soon. Okay.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Jackie. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Unity Project. If you guys enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes that you've heard, please go give it a rating anywhere that you listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, any of the places. Also, if you want to connect further, then go follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV. Send me a message there. Ask anything that you want. Uh, I got links there if you want to check out my book, if you want to get more involved in the podcast. Everything's there. Love hearing from you guys. So thank you so much and I'll see you next week.